Colossians chapter 4. This is our final sermon from the book of Colossians. There might be one of you who says, does it have to end already? But most of you are probably like going, we made it. All right? Because it's been 13 months that we've been in Colossians. So, chapter 4. I'm just going to read the last verse. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the people who are here this morning that you have drawn for various reasons to this place, some for a baptism, some because this is where they regularly worship, some because they look for a new place to worship. I ask most importantly that you would help us to know Christ and Him crucified, that you would reveal the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ to all of us this morning. We need to be filled with the knowledge of your will. We all need wisdom and understanding from the Spirit as we review this letter. Use it to teach us to walk in a manner worthy of you, that pleases you and bears fruit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your beloved Son and the Savior of sinners. Amen. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story of why Martin Luther ended up in the monastery. You've heard the story of the thunderstorm and the lightning strike that almost hit him as he falls upon his face and cries out, St. Anne, deliver me! He was a little off there, and we'll get to that later on. But one of the things that struck me as I was sort of reviewing uh, through uh, Benton's book was that when he presented himself before the prior of the monastery to be received in this Augustinian order, the question from the head of the monastery is, what is it that you seek? And Martin Luther responded that he sought two things, grace from God and mercy from you. And what sort of unfolds in Martin Luther's time in the monastery is this seemingly insatiable quest to find the grace of God and yet always coming up short. He was a man who wrestled with guilt deep within his soul. He would wear out his confessors because he always remembered one more sin. And sometimes it would be hours. Can you imagine that? Hours confessing his sin to the confessor. His was a life, as we'll see, that was spent in numerous exercises trying to remove sin from himself that became of no avail. Martin Luther was a man who needed reformation himself. His goal was not to start some brand new movement. His goal was only to understand how God, who is holy, righteous, and just, can welcome sinners such as himself into his presence. And for many years within the monastery, he did not find that. 
it plagued him. And it really wasn't until his very frustrated leader, Staupitz, decided that he should now teach theology so that he might find the cure in the only place where there is the cure, the Scriptures. Maybe if Luther had started with Colossians, it might have happened sooner, but who's to say? But I see that here in the letter of Colossians, a lot of those issues are addressed and brought forth and and really contrast with the life that Luther was leading there in the monastery. Our big idea this morning is that the grace we need is found only in Christ and only through faith. Before we get into that, I want to just touch on a couple of things here in the last verse. As you notice, as you read it, Paul personally wrote the greeting that we find here. For the rest of the letter, he used an amanuasis or a scribe. I probably was Luke, but we're not positive who it was. But someone else, he would dictate and they would scribble down what he was saying and they might correct his grammar, who knows. But uh, here he stops and says, give me the piece of paper. Give me the, par- the parchment. And he scribbles this in his own hand so they might know it is from him. And in this he re- includes a request. Remember my chains. That's it. He wants them to remember something very important. Not just that he is in chains, but I think he wants them to also understand that they too, if they continue to preach Jesus Christ as supreme and sufficient, may end up in a place similar to Paul. Because Paul's experience, when you look at church history, is not all that strange. Martin Luther himself, after the Reformation, was excommunicated from the Roman church. A bounty was placed on his head. He always lived in fear that today is the day that they're going to come and they're going to drag me away and I'm going to meet my death. The death that was found by John Huss years earlier. The Czechoslovakian reformer, proto-reformer, who was trying to reform the church was found guilty of heresy and condemned to death in Prague. But it wasn't only him. John Wycliffe, who was hounded down until he faced his death. We remember, of course, that the Apostle Paul himself was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen and could not be crucified. Peter, presumably in Rome as well, was crucified upside down. And so... What Paul says to his, in his second letter to Timothy, that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, was something that he wrote from personal experience, not from a safe place. Paul was in prison and would eventually be killed for the message that he preached about Jesus Christ. And when it is done, he would say, it was worth it. And so we too might be called to face such things. And whether or not you believe in the Jesus he presents here in Colossians is whether or not you will say it was worth it. All right, the first real point. Seeking from the declarations of the Reformation, sola gratia. We are only saved 
by grace. Paul's benediction here in verse 18 says, Grace be with you. He begins with grace and peace to you. This entire letter is really about the grace of God. And we need to kind of remember that as we think about this letter. What is grace? Simply said, as many have mentioned, it is God's unmerited favor. And this sort of rubs against the self-justifying flesh of sinners. Martin Luther not only said that he has to pound the gospel into their brains every time he can, but also the idea that within each of us there is a little religious zealot or a Pharisee that is ceaselessly at work seeking to gain approval from God on the basis of what we do. All of us still, even if though we may be a Christian, there's a remnant of that little guy within who's crying out, do, 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 that you might get praise, praise, praise. Fallen man keeps seeking to earn God's favor by his own merit. We want to merit, merit it. We want to earn it, as R.C. Sproul is fond of saying, that the natural man outside of Christ is like Barney and Smith. We earn our money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Or we make our money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Okay. People outside of Christ try to earn it. That's the drumbeat of their souls. I want, I, I want to be accepted by God, and therefore I will do what it takes to be accepted by God. And God is saying that something different is necessary. Like many of the monks, Luther sought to gain God's grace by his religious works. He would fast, sometimes for days on end, seeking to gain God's favor. He would pray, along with the others, for hours at a time, seeking, not requesting God's grace, but thinking that by the fact of his praying, sort of this way, God, I prayed for three hours today. Where's my grace? So sort of treating it as a work as opposed to sort of a means in which we, we make our requests known and God graciously answers those requests, hours in prayer. The deprivation of the body as he sometimes would go without a blanket, not in the midst of summer, but in the midst of winter. And there were some who were surprised they didn't find him frozen to death when morning came. All seeking to gain the grace of God. And against this sort of thing, Paul in Colossians says a couple of things. For instance, in Colossians 2, verse 16, we find, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. They were these rules and laws that were being used by the false teachers to somehow get people to earn God's grace or stay within God's grace. Oh, you can't eat that meat on Friday. That's a special day. And so this is what 
the mind and the heart apart from Christ tend to do. Within the church of Rome at that point in time, the Western church, there was the idea that while your sin was personal, it was only your sin, goodness could be extended, so to speak, to others. That there was this thing that they called the treasury of merit. And all of the excess virtue of Jesus, all of his extra merit that he didn't need for himself, was placed within this treasury. And that those who had been saved by God, but then continued to live a a special life, the saints, their merit, extra merit, would be tossed into this as well. And that this merit was then available to people if they met certain conditions. And some of these conditions were you get some of the merit if you go and you visit the relics that are scattered throughout Europe. There's no need to go into how many different uh, splinters there were from the cross that Paul was, uh, sorry, Peter was um, crucified upon. But the bones of the saints and other things like that, you would go to there, you would see them, you would say a prayer, and you would get some of the merit from the treasury of merit. In some instances, it would be a pilgrimage. If you made the pilgrimage to Rome, you would receive certain amounts of merit for yourself or for others. And one of the things that happened in Luther's life is that he got to go to Rome. He was sent because there was a conflict between some of the other Augustinians, and uh, he and another monk were sent to bring the message to Rome, a letter to Rome. And so he had a few days there. And what he did was he visited the sites of pilgrimage one of which was the steps that supposedly were the steps up to Pilate's. Um, I can't remember the word now. Anyway, the, the steps from Jerusalem that Pilate and Jesus walked upon. And so what the common thing to do would be is to climb them on your hands and knees, saying a prayer upon each step. And Martin Luther did this. And when he got to the top, he didn't feel a sense of relief. He didn't feel a sense of joy. He felt doubt. Did this really matter? He was beginning to question the usual means that those around him had been teaching him to find the grace of God. So he still struggled to find this grace because he was looking for it through his own merit. This grace, I think, can be broken up in at least these two ways. One was pardoning grace, God's unmerited favor that removes the guilt of our sin. And Luther desperately wanted to know that grace. That grace, as it says here in Colossians, is found precisely because of Christ, precisely because of Christ crucified. Chapter 1, verse 13 He, meaning the Father, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The grace of God comes to sinners in part through the forgiveness of their sins and transgressions against Him. Colossians 2 God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And so part of the message of grace that Paul wants the the, uh, Colossians to understand, and he would want Luther to understand, and he wants you to understand, is that it starts with this pardoning grace. 
But it's not just about the pardoning grace. It's also about purifying grace. God's unmerited favor that empowers us to live God-honoring lives. Our sinful nature, which is is not extinguished when we're converted, but it's, it's still there. And now, instead of, you know, here's the subtle shift, instead of gaining our acceptance with God through, the, through good works, it tries to maintain our acceptance with God through good works. A shift takes place because our sinful nature is a restless sort of evil within us. And so we think that God will answer my prayers as a Christian because I've been so good, because I've been so faithful, It's not because Christ has been faithful, but because I, in some sense, have been faithful, that God must answer my prayers. Jerry Bridges talks about this in Transforming Grace, about, you know, good day, bad day. On a good day, I'm fairly confident God will answer my prayers, but on a bad day, when I've, you know, sinned in some way that I recognize, that's a bad day and God won't answer my prayers that day. That's all about what I do, and it has nothing to do with what Christ has done. And so it's a shift out of grace. Now the interesting thing about the theology of Rome that we'll sort of get to here is that while they initially believed in the grace of God at conversion and and it was given through baptism, after you sinned post-baptism, that's when sort of the works have to start kicking in. You're going through rites, you're going through rituals to make yourself, put yourself back within God's good graces, His favorable relationship. And so, good works and self-denial begin to work, this time not to pay the penalty required by sin, but to maintain one's status with God. And so Luther did all of these things. He celebrated special masses. He didn't eat meat on Fridays. And that sounds strange to us unless we've come from the background of the Roman Catholic Church like I, I did. But, you know, we Protestants have these things too, you know. Don't dance. Don't drink. Let's can go on. Don't go to the cinema. You know, these ways in which we think that our actions will somehow merit us additional favor from God, and they are the reason that we receive answers to prayer. And so the message of Christianity is fundamentally about grace, not about trying harder, not about promising to do better. It is about grace. Secondly, solus Christus, that this grace that we've talked about, that Paul wants them to have, this grace is found only in Christ. Now you see, in, in Roman theology, in, in Paul's, uh, sorry, Luther's day, as well as our day today, grace was granted through the sacraments. Now, we're going to have two sacraments here this morning, the only two. <laughs> Baptism, communion. Okay? The way we understand them is fundamentally different from the way in which the Roman church understood them. They believed that the grace that was there was granted through the sacraments ex opere operato, through the working, the mere doing of it. And so if we, for instance, Elena Grace, she comes up here, I put water on her, I use the Trinitarian formula, and boom, she's now a Christian. She's saved. She's not part of the visible 
Christian community, the visible church, but they're saying she's saved. They made her into a Christian. We have a very different understanding than that. So, for those of you who come from a believer's Baptist perspective, when we do this this morning, that's not what we're saying is happening. And so, that was their understanding. And almost in a sense, Christ is not necessary. The view of Rome was that Christ purchased the initial grace we need. See, they they talked a little bit about Jesus. You needed Jesus. There was no salvation apart from Jesus, but for them it was Jesus and, just like it was for the false teachers in Colossae. Yep, you need Jesus, but you also need these rites and these rituals and these ceremonies in order to have real grace. So Jesus is there, but not only him. For the Church of Rome, they had a number of secondary mediators. Mary, of course, was called, and still is called, co-redemptrix, co-redeemer, co-mediator. The art of that time often portrayed Jesus as angry, as the vengeful judge. And so the average person, and Luther was one of these average people, viewed Christ with fear. Not the kind of fear we talk about of reverence, but the fear of, I don't want to be near him. He's going to kill me, kind of fear. And so this was part of why they brought in the saints and they brought in Mary, because they can approach Jesus and turn his wrath away from you. And so they had the number of of these secondary mediators. And so Luther, we see initially, when that thunderstorm, who did he cry out to? Not Jesus, save me. St. Anne, save me. St. Anne, the patron saint of minors, his father's patron saint, deliver me. In the ceremony in which he became a monk, there was also an invocation to not just Jesus, but Mary. Luther, as his his custom was, each day he would pray to Mary and then three other saints. So he had 21 other saints that he would rotate through through the week in addition to praying to Mary, these co-mediators with Jesus, that he might find grace, so to speak, from Jesus. Grace was not found by insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Paul says in Colossians. These false teachers not only pointed to these rituals, but they also pointed to angel mediators in addition to Jesus for salvation. But Paul clearly teaches here and elsewhere that there is no grace without Christ who is the source of it all. And not only that, he is the only mediator. The only mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So be done with these saints that you beg and implore for mercy. They are no closer to Christ, really, than you, since you are united to Christ. Can't get much closer than that, can we? It is Christ himself who has made peace for us through his cross. He is the one who has brought reconciliation. He is the one who has brought pardon. Or, as Paul says in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The implication of that being, we are fools to look anywhere but to him. We are fools if we are not caught up in the great mystery of the God-man crucified and focus our attention on mere men who, like us, needed a Redeemer and a Savior. So just as Paul called them out of this false teaching, it reminds us that it is only in Christ Sadly, there are many churches today that preach essentially what Michael Horton calls a Christless Christianity. They preach moralism. They preach seven steps to a better fill-in-the-blank, however you want to look at it. They're not preaching Christ as the central message, the theme of it all. This week, uh, I saw an interview with Phil Vischer, some of you may be familiar with that name, or some of you may not realize you know that name. He was the founder of Veggie Tales. Okay. After about a decade, I heard that Veggie Tales. Um, after a decade, he lost control of Big Idea, which was the company that produced Veggie Tales, and so he kind of went into this season of really seeking God. And here's what he says about that time. As my relationship with God grew deeper and my love of the Bible increased a profound thought hit me. Had I just spent 10 years trying to get kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity? He continued, We certainly need to teach kids biblical values, but biblical values aren't the gospel. Introducing a child to kindness isn't equal to introducing him or her to Jesus. So he realized that he had been preaching essentially moralism instead of Christianity to children. So many churches are just like that. They're very good about talking about what you can and cannot do, but they're not so good about talking about Christ the Christ who is the one with whom we are united, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells, and therefore we have access to the fullness of God. He grants us things out of our union. He changes us out of this union. It's not about trying harder, doing better. It's about resting in Christ and putting sin to death through the Spirit. So Christianity is all about Christ. He is supposed to be what we preach and the one that we glorify, which is why Paul says at the end of Colossians 1, Him we proclaim. Him and no one else. Colossians 3, he has that trinity, so to speak, of the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, it just brings us back. It's about Christ. It's His word that matters. It's the peace that comes from Him that matters. It is His name, His authority that matters. This is why Jared Wilson in his book, The Pastor's Justification, writes, 
Because only Jesus transforms, the focus and message of our ministry must be only Jesus. The exclusivity of Christ is not just a text, sorry, a test of Christian orthodoxy. It is a test of Christian orthopraxy. Right practice. And so while I'm using Luther's life to illustrate some things, what I'm really doing is I'm pointing you to Christ. Or I failed in my calling. So united to Christ, we receive this purifying grace that we need to grow. In a sense, he replicates himself in us. He's restoring, as it says in Colossians, us into that righteous image. So from beginning to end, salvation is all of grace, and that grace is only found in Christ. Third thing, sola fide, that grace is received only by faith in that Christ. Okay, It's, it's not just a general sort of faith, but it's, it's meant to be a faith in Christ himself. You see, in Luther's day, the merit of Christ and the saints was obtained partially, as I mentioned, in the sacraments. But it could also be obtained through indulgences. At times, the Pope wanted to raise funds for building projects or to just plain support what was going on. And indulgences would be offered. Peter Tetzel was the one who was working in Luther's day in his region. And for a sum, you could receive an indulgence, which would mean that you get, depending on the sum you paid, so much, so many years off of your time in purgatory. Or you could purchase it for a friend or a loved one if you didn't need it yourself, ladies and gentlemen. Who's going to make an offer? Okay, that wasn't quite like that. But you get the idea. It's sort of crass. A selling of salvation. For money. That's where I'm reminded of Colossians 2. Make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Similar to what Peter says, the empty way of life that has been handed down to us from our fathers. This is just an extension of that worthless way of life. In Rome, at that not in Rome, but within the Western church at that point in time, there were actually many conflict, conflicting theories that were kind of going on at the same time. They had this, um, you know, as long as they don't talk to each other, they could embrace all of these things. They coexisted within the church of Rome. Uh, you know, there was sort of the mystical bent that you see, you know, in, in St. John of the Cross and, and uh, St. Teresa of Avia and that kind of stuff, this mystical movement. And, uh, you know, Martin Luther tried that, <laughs> that emptying of oneself aspect. And then there's sort of these other threads that were going on. And one of the threads that was there, it was there, but it wasn't very popular, was justification by faith alone. There was still this remnant of some people who believed that we are saved by grace through faith, just as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. 
there were still a few that believed that, as it says in Habakkuk 2, the righteous live by faith, which Paul quotes in Galatians as well as in Romans. There was still a small group of people who held to this thing, and Luther rediscovered it, so to speak, because he didn't learn it from one of these people, but he learned it from studying the Scriptures, just as Staupitz wanted him to. And Luther, for a while, coexisted with the dogma of Rome. There wasn't a problem. They did not come down on him for teaching what he was teaching there in Wittenberg. It was only until he realized that the indulgences were contrary to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he, he nailed that thing to the Wittenberg door all those years ago. It wasn't until then that all of a sudden it became an issue because Martin Luther was cutting off the revenue stream. And it was then, in the response to Luther, that in the Council of Trent, that essentially Roman Catholicism solidified its theology into what we kind of know today. And of course, rejected the idea that one can be justified by faith and faith alone. Luther's discovery of justification by faith was personal. It was his personal discovery that this was the truth, but it was also his personal discovery in the sense of, I need to trust Jesus Christ. This is in line with what Paul teaches the Colossians. He emphasized their need for faith in Christ in order to receive this grace. Starting off in chapter 1, as he's talking about them in verse 4, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. They're part of the church because of their faith in Christ Jesus. Later in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And so they heard a message and they believed the message and they were to stay in the message. What is this thing we call faith? Perhaps my favorite definition is extra-biblical, so pardon me. It's J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. Faith is self-abandoning trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is saving faith. It reflects this reality in talking about we who were dead in our sins and trespasses were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And so saving faith is staking your entire future, earthly and eternal, on Jesus Christ. E.E. often talks about the idea, you know, trying, trying to engage you a little bit, and they talk about the chair. You know, do you, do you believe that the chair can hold you up? And you will have an intellectual assent. Yes, I believe, I believe the stool or the chair can hold me up. And they say, well, faith is not just no, believing the church can, the, the chair can hold you up. Faith is actually sitting in the chair so that it holds you up. And so faith is not just assent to propositional truths. Faith, saving faith is also 
trust that the message is sufficient. We were at community group last spring, I think it was, and Sam Shope sat down in a chair that he thought would hold him up, and it didn't. (laughs) He chose the wrong chair. Sometimes we can choose the wrong chair. If that chair is not Christ, we're sitting in the wrong spot. It's similar to when I've gone rappelling up in Tennessee. You're not going over the edge of that cliff unless you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that that rope can hold you up. And that's faith. Saving faith is going over the edge, believing that Christ will hold you up. That Christ is indeed supreme, is indeed sufficient to do what he says he's going to do. And so the question then emerges for each and every one of us here, particularly those of us who have been baptized, I think, perhaps as infants, where is your faith? Have you received the grace that is shown and sealed in baptism and communion? It, is only, it only comes to us through faith. We receive what baptism shows forth, our engrafting in Christ, the, the forgiveness of sins and everything else. We receive that only when we believe in Christ. It's the same thing when we come to the table. There are spiritual benefits that are supposed to be communicated to us the dying to sin and the, and the coming to life of the new man, but they only, we only receive them when we receive these elements by faith. And so grace is received by faith in Christ alone. So have you professed faith in Christ? And having professed faith in Christ, do you continue to profess faith in Christ? It's not a one-time thing, raise your hand, walk the aisle, say the prayer, and you're done forever. The idea is intended to be one of continuing and maintaining faith in Christ by His grace. Continuing to not just intellectually assent, but to actually trust Him. Where there is no faith in Christ, there is no grace from Christ. I like the more positive statement by Martin Luther. A Christian soul has all that Christ has. For faith brings us at once all the blessings of Christ. So grace, it's only grace, it's only Christ, it's only faith. But prior to the Reformation, the church had these many competing theologies, and many of them were at a loss as to what to believe and what to do to be saved. In other words, how to receive grace. They were just as confused as Martin Luther was. Today, the situation is very similar. But Colossians addresses both Luther's day and our day by stressing that salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. By stressing that this grace is only found in Jesus Christ. And by stressing that it is only received by faith in Christ. This points us to one of the other declarations of the Reformation, sola scriptura, for only Scripture is our final authority. And so if Scripture teaches us this, we are to believe it. So tradition, while helpful, 
is not authoritative. Scripture, as the word of Christ, brings us only to Christ for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that uh, the work is not done, that the Reformation needs to continue. For we are prone to wander, not just in our actions, but our theology. We're prone to leave the purity of the gospel and start adding things to it. So, Father, I thank you for this letter which reminds us of the realities of grace, Christ, and faith that we are to cling to as our only hope in this world and in the world to come. And so continue to dig it deeper into our hearts, not just our heads, but our hearts so that we begin to act, to live, to move, to have our breathing by grace and not works so that you receive the glory instead of us trying to steal it from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.